2: This is Randy Backward from the Guess Who and BTO, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. One
1: pill makes you larger.
2: Pantheon Podcasts presents from Toronto, Canada. Muses with your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. The podcast that celebrates the women of rock and roll. Interviews, stories, and fabulous fun. So, grab those backstage passes and let's get to our show.
1: Hey there, Shanti. Hey, Lynx. How's it going? Oh, doing well. And hey, everybody, you're listening to Muses, the podcast that's all about the lovers, the inspirations, the groupies, the rock wives in music.
3: Yes, all that good stuff. So, happy uh,
1: to have you here. Sorry? said I'm happy to have the listeners here. And links. I'm happy to have you here.
3: Uh, me too. And it's finally feeling like summer out here. So my mood has definitely been more positive lately. <laughs> and... We got so much exciting things happening. I've just been sending out some of the 20 questions questionnaire that we have going on on our new site to some really awesome women. And I can't wait for everyone to check that out. If you haven't yet, go to our website. We have these 20 questions up now with Pamela DeBar, Dee Dee Keel, Maureen Van Zandt, Kristen Casey, and a whole bunch more coming. And if you go to our site, we have a new newsletter so sign up and you'll get monthly reminders of what's going on with us
1: yeah some what have love you been up letters. to what's up with you well oh we should say if you head over to musespod.com that's where you're gonna find all that stuff yes so what's up with me um i've been sitting outside today and i've been making some special gifts to send to some special patrons oh that's exciting. So one of the tiers for Patreon is uh, we send you something special in the mail. So it's handmade, kind of DIY, crafty. So all of the patrons that have that certain tier look in the mail soon. I'm going to send you a special something. And for those who want to support us in another way, but Patreon might not... um, be your way to do it. If you could head over to iTunes and leave us uh, five stars and a positive review, that actually really helps us. And what it does, it's allows other people to find us easier. We haven't charted yet. Maybe we will someday. And um, I know we get beautiful DMs from people all the time. If you're listening and you're somebody who sent us a wonderful message, if you could head over and just type that exact same thing over into iTunes, we'd really appreciate it.
3: Uh, Yes, it means so much to us. And just getting those messages are always they make my day, you know, it's so much fun. And usually either I see it first, or you see it first. And we kind of immediately send it to each other being like, Oh, my God, like, look at this great message. So yeah, they mean a lot to us.
1: They do. So you tell us now go and tell the world. (laughs) All right. What have you got for us today?
3: Well, this one's a big one. I'm going to cover Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne. So how about... Uh, <laughs> how about I kick it off with a song? Perfect. I'm never gonna crack a little at his Never put a on me I'm never gonna For this episode, I read Sharon Osbourne's book called Extreme. She's actually written multiple books at this point. I just focused on this one right now because to me, I was more interested in finding out how she became who she is today, like pre-Osbourne reality show, because that's sort of when she became on my radar. And I wanted to know like her background. So I'm going to give that to you.
1: So starting from the beginning in her words.
3: Yes. So, so the book
1: title is extreme. extreme. The book title match the story. Oh, hell yes.
3: <laughs> Perfect definition for her life. This is going to be a wild ride. It's also like not always nice. There's physical abuse in here. There's things that are crazy. And I just want to throw that out there as well just to warn listeners because I was I was shocked reading it.
1: Okay. All right.
3: So Sharon was born Sharon Levy in London, England on October 9th, 1952. Her mother Hope was a divorced Irish Catholic mother of two already who ran a boarding house for all types of artists. And that's how she met Sharon's father. His name was Don. He was 10 years younger than Uh, Sharon's mother. Get it girl. Yeah. So he took a room for a week and six weeks later they were married. They had their first son together, David, and then Sharon came about two years after that. So her dad was born Harry Levy, but he felt that was too Jewish a name to make it in show business. So he changed his name to Don Arden. He was a singer who was successful enough to tour quite a bit when Sharon was young. I'm going to talk a lot about Sharon's father, Don, because he plays a massive, massive role in her entire life. In a good way? Uh, Yes and no. Mostly no. So Sharon grew up in that artistic boarding house in Brixton, so she was surrounded by the arts from the get-go. She talks about growing up in Brixton, which was a a slum of London, and she says, like, her and her brother had a lot of fun. They were very mischievous. They were stealing. They were playing. They were running wild. They were putting on shows for strangers. She just had like, a wild, carefree kind of childhood at first. So, Sharon's father, Don, was not just a singer, but he was also a music promoter and manager. And in 1960, Don discovered rock and roll, so he began a journey to kind of spread that across England. He became Gene Vincent's manager, you might know bebop a And Sharon mentions that her dad would put together shows and bring people like Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, Sam Cooke, Connie Francis, and so many others on the road. Sharon would sometimes get to join these tours, and she has this really cute story of being nine years old and having a big crush on Sam Cooke, and that he would kiss her every time that he saw her, and she would just blush and be all adorable. Um, Some others she mentions being lovely were the Everly Brothers, but she says Manfred Mann were not impressed with children being backstage no uh she has some more other fun stories in the book for anyone who wants to read more about you know her youth adventures backstage sharon talks about her dad being all show for instance around this time they moved away from brixton into a much classier area and i believe she said that he also bought a rolls royce but he didn't actually have the money to back all this up it was all about appearances they couldn't even afford a phone in their flat. He was also known for an extremely violent street. He always had bodyguards or more like thugs around to help promote this appearance of he wanted to be like a gangster, like he wanted to be a scary gangster guy. Things weren't. Great at home either. Her mom was definitely not a homemaker. Instead of cleaning, she says that she'd throw things under the couch or the beds. They were always running out of things like soap and toilet paper. My girl, yeah,
1: my style. (laughs) So
3: washing wasn't like a big thing either. Sharon says that like she went to um like a school that, that had a uniform, and she would have to wash her uniform in the bathtub by herself. So. I think maybe it's possible that her mother had depression. She got in a car accident around that time. Sharon says she was never really the same after that and spent a lot of time in bed, which probably explains the situation at home. Mm -hmm. So Sharon remembers her father getting involved in the Star Club in Hamburg where the Beatles got their start. And she says that John Lennon actually asked her dad to manage them, but her father thought that they were pop copycats and that they wouldn't last. And he was really only interested in American music. Yeah. By 1965, Dawn did have multiple charting artists, though. The biggest were probably the Small Faces, Ichiku Park, Lazy Sunday. There's actually an infamous incident that shows her dad's level of scary. Apparently, him and one of his thugs went to Robert Stigwood's office to quote, teach him a lesson because he was approaching the Small Faces and like trying to get them to sign with him. Robert's best known for being Cream and the Bee Gees manager. So apparently, like, Don actually threatened to throw him out a window if that ever happened again. So that's the type of manager Don was.
1: Good. I I don't know if I love it or hate it.
3: It's an interesting time. It's a very interesting time. So for a time, Sharon wanted to be a dancer. She attended classes and auditions. She did snag a few parts in theater companies, but her drive just wasn't there to turn that into a career. By the time she was 15, she was over all that. She was over school. She dropped out. Her older brother, David, had already begun working with their dad. And when Sharon quit school, that's the route that she took as well.
1: Did you do any classes or lessons when you were little? Yeah,
3: I did a lot and I didn't want to do any of them. I was forced. (laughs) So except drama. You're Um,
1: like me. You did a bunch of stuff and you quit.
3: Yeah. My mother put me in sports and I hated sports so much. The only thing I really did love is drama. And when I moved back with my dad in Toronto, he put me in drama school and that was great for me. Uh, And I loved it.
1: Oh, you should have been on Degrassi. (laughs) Okay.
3: Back to Sharon. She became the office receptionist at first. And one of my favorite quotes in the book at this point is when she says, guess what? I turned out to be good at all the bullshit. Finally, something I could do that my father approved of. So that again, gives you an idea of what her father valued. And she sort of became his right-hand bullshitter to the banks, to the acts, to other managers. Anytime her dad needed protection or felt it was better for him not to do something face to face with someone he he would put her in his place basically when sharon was 15 or so her dad thought it was time for them once again to move on up in the world even if they didn't have the finances for it he ended up buying a mansion in wimbledon for 5000 pounds which seems insane But he was supposed to pay the rest off in a year's time. And she says that like while they were decorating, like money ran out. They were living in this mansion by candlelight with like no gas or electricity. So again, it's just all for show. Mm -hmm. They were still working hard to make it in the music business, though. And in 1970, Sharon was 16. She got invited with her dad to go to a showcase to check out a new band that had been making a buzz around town. Can you guess who?
1: Does it have to do with
3: Ozzy? It does, yes. And he was in before he was born. So when they came on, Sharon said she'd never heard anything like it. That band, of course, was Black Sabbath.
1: Oh, that's them, right. I had a (laughs) I had a brain poof.
3: So they decided to meet the band in hopes of managing them. Black Sabbath ended up coming to the office. She describes the band as like strange looking, like hair in their faces. But the singer, he was the strangest of all. It was wintertime. He came wearing sandals, a pajama top for a shirt. Sharon invited them to sit down and none of them took a chair. They all sat on the floor before being called into Don's office. It turned out that the band wanted to work with Don, but they were scared of him. And they were sort of sweet talked by some of Don's co-workers. And a man who worked with Don, Patrick Meehan, ended up managing them and creating his own corporation, which was definitely a blow to Don. But Sharon mentions like that the music business at the time was like that cutthroat. Like people were backstabbing their best friends for bands. And that led to like a huge Issue between like the Means and the Ardens for a long time. Okay. So they didn't get Sabbath. The Means did. How about we play a little Sabbath?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
3: No, this is not the time where Sharon and Ozzy get together. She was 16. You read my mind. Yeah, she was only 16. She says she felt unattractive and that boys were a waste of time. She mentions purposely overeating as like a protection of sorts from unwanted attention. But of course, there always comes a time where things change. And she met her first boyfriend when she was 17. His name was Adrian Williams. He was in a band called Judas Jump that her dad managed. So, Shanti... What happens when a young teenage girl with zero experience gets together with her first love? She gets
1: pregnant. Yeah, this is the formula. How many episodes <laughs> has this happened? How many it's stories? Cra-
3: it's crazy. Yeah, it's 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 insane how often this happens. Unfortunately, her mother basically forced the idea of abortion on her. The experience was really difficult, and she says that her mother was no help or not there for her at all. That. She she just had this sort of, like, you got yourself into it, you get yourself out of it attitude. Two takes two to tango. Yeah, well, Adrian was supportive, though, and he actually ended up working for Don and moving into their family house for the next five years. So they had a quite a long relationship. She does mention her weight being an issue in their relationship, as well as his womanizing. They were both so young, and I assume he didn't want to be tied down. Who does when you're, like, 20? She mentions he was very good looking and attracted both men and women. And one man in particular who was also a friend of Sharon's was Freddie Mercury. Oh, cool. Yeah. And this was when he was with Mary. And she says several years later, like Freddie would come to her asking to set up a meeting with her father because he wanted his band to join with Don as well. And Don actually helped them get out of the management that they had at the time and they were all set to join him but they had a big christmas party that year and freddie met john reed who worked at emi and john reed managed elton john and john swooped in and got freddie instead which again was like another blow to don (laughs) but don was doing all right now he snagged another big band at the time which was elo oh cool yeah So after five years with Adrian, Sharon realized it was going nowhere. He was looking elsewhere. It was really breaking her heart, especially since she still had to work with him in the office every day. So she really struggled and she really felt like she needed a new beginning. So she decided it was time to move to L.A. The Ardens already had an office there and her brother David did a lot of the U.S. work, but he wanted to be in England more. So Sharon was going to be put in his place, basically.
1: I mean, why not? Yeah. By the way,
3: it did take Sharon years to get over the heartbreak of Adrian, but she did, and they became lifelong friends after that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. She has nothing but great
1: things to say about him. My first boyfriend was at 17, and we're still friends. I'm I'm
3: pretty much friends with all, I mean, not all, but a lot of the ones that, like, meant something, exes. It's nice when you can keep it friendly.
1: It's a good place to be.
3: It is. So Sharon moved to L.A. in April of 1976 when she was 22.
1: 1976. are 20- 22. It's like a dream.
3: Yeah. Uh, and she says she got her green card by her father paying a senator, and I quote, a shitload of money. <laughs> this was really for her father's benefit so she could do his business out there, like tax returns and things that he couldn't or didn't want to put his signature on. That's important. So she had this job. She was staying in a hotel until she found a place. She made friends really easily because of all the connections she had. Her life was really looking up. The Ardens actually finally had money because they were working with ELO and ELO was doing great. And Sharon bought a $1.7 million house for the whole family, but it was mostly just her staying there because her brother and her dad would only fly in like a few days a month to do business and then go back. They even had a maid in the house for the first time. And there's this horrifying, horrifying story in the book about the maid stealing and denying it. And her dad coming and taking like a gold chain off from around his neck and putting it around his knuckles and beating the woman until she confessed.
1: Oh my god, I don't like that and
3: that's what her dad was like. He was he was a gangster thug that was like an awful human being. Apparently the maid went to jail for 5 years after that too for <sighs>
1: stuff.
3: She recalls another night where her father and another man got into a physical fight and Sharon at this point, was so in love with her dad and, like, didn't think he could do no wrong that, like, she interjected and ended up getting, like, beat up herself, like, trying to protect her dad. She really thought he was, like, an amazing person. I won't go into details about all the scams that her dad was doing. If you're interested and you should be, go and read the book because it's all fascinating. I'm just trying to focus a little more on Sharon's story here.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
3: So the fall of 1976, a friend of hers invited her to a Sabbath gig there in L.A. Up until then, she'd only had that one interaction, but she'd seen Ozzy around L.A., but they didn't really talk until this show. She says, we must have talked for an hour and a half. He just made me laugh and laugh. I remember thinking, God, this is such a sweet, funny guy. He has such a lovely face and smile. She mentions that Ozzy was really the butt of every joke and the band was like not happy with him at all. They were blaming him for everything that went wrong. She couldn't really understand why there was so much hate towards him. They had another run in around this time and Sharon's feelings for him kind of began to develop. But Ozzy was actually married and a father of two. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that either. Well, actually, a father of three because he adopted uh, one of his wife's previous children.
1: I can't picture him as a younger guy. I only know him as like. Oh, really? You should look him up because he was actually quite lovely when he was younger. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I can only remember him as like the kind of like a hunched, babbling guy from the show and stuff. Um, But I, yeah, he was he was cute, right? Oh, he was cute for sure. Okay.
3: So, yeah, he had married a woman named Thelma Riley in 1971. In 1972, they had a daughter named Jessica and then a son, Louis, in 75. I looked them up. As we know, Ozzy had a serious drug addiction and was a total fuck up back then. And I saw somewhere that he kind of described that marriage as a mistake. And he, he can't really remember his kids being born or like that era. Oops. Yeah. So at the time, Sharon held her feelings Back. And apparently Ozzy also felt that spark at the time, but was also holding back. So in 1977, Sharon was on the road managing ELO. So the ELO guys were well-versed in touring at this point and also in their 30s. So they were sort of over the whole like crazy wild tour party life. But Sharon was young and bored and just getting into it. So she mentions like some wild fun parties and stuff that happened Apparently, one time, Andy Gibb from the Bee Gees, like she went to his place and like threw up all over his record collection. She actually
1: you sorry? getting laid and getting
3: paid, getting laid, getting paid. She had a ball. She didn't need Ozzy around to like teach her how to be wild and crazy. She was trashing hotel rooms without the band and then having to pay for it the next day. She also mentions that her and her girlfriend hated this one particular man who worked at CBS, calling him a chauvinist pig, and they would charge all these clothes and meals to his room since no one ever checked those things back then. So Sharon definitely had her own wild moments before Ozzy ever entered the picture.
1: Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This episode of Muses is sponsored by Best Fiends. If you haven't downloaded Best Fiends yet, what are you waiting for? Best Fiends has
3: challenging puzzles, but it's a casual game that anyone can play.
1: I'm spending a lot of time at home, and I'm glad I've got Best Fiends to keep me occupied. I usually play while my boyfriend watches TV, and he started watching me play and asking if he can play a few levels. So now he loves it too. Of course he does. Not only
3: do they up the challenges, but they update the game monthly with new levels and fun events,
1: so there's always something exciting going on. I just passed level 180. I'm waiting for your wow. I'm I'm shocked. I'm so impressed. <laughs> I love how they up the challenge while still keeping it fun. I play between teaching classes and to unwind at the end of my day. Yeah, and for anyone who's worried about surpassing
3: their monthly bandwidth, Best Fiends does not require the internet to play, so keep on
1: leveling up. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store
3: or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Alright, well... Her time with Ozzy and Sabbath was coming real soon, though. She kept in touch with Tony Iommi. He's the guitarist for Sabbath, and things weren't looking good band-wise. By 1978, the band was realizing that their management, which was actually the Means, remember, were ripping them off and decided to part ways with them. And Tony asked Sharon if she thought her father might consider managing them instead. We well, you know, her dad is also a thief <laughs> and Sharon admits she knows that her dad would have taken advantage of them as well, but that he also would have given them more money than the means would. So like it was better for them. Right. Uh, so Sabbath came over to their side and so began a long battle with their firm and management. We won't get into that, but basically it lasted until the 90s. It was a crazy thing. First thing Sharon and Don did was bring Sabbath to LA. They rented a house with a studio in it. Sharon began to see Ozzy daily. Got to know him a lot better. At the time, though, Ozzy thought Tony and Sharon had a thing going on since they were kind of close friends and everything. So again, they weren't together yet. The band itself was going through a rough period—not just the management hell, but drugs, lack of discipline, work-wise. Sharon says it was like pulling teeth trying to get them to come together and work. And one day, Tony came to Sharon and he said, we want Ozzy out of the band. He's too into drugs. It's taking a toll. He's a mess. We don't want to work with him anymore. And Ozzy was also unhappy with the band situation. Obviously, felt that they didn't want him there. So... You have this situation where like Sharon and Don are trying to pull the band t- together to create this next album, but they're crumbling apart. And one day it was decided, Ozzy's out, and they asked Sharon to call up a singer that she knew called Ronnie Del Rio, and that's who replaced Ozzy. It seems Sharon was the only one who was still thinking of Ozzy after they dumped him. She got one of the roadies she knew from the ELO tour to drive Ozzy around town to help him wherever possible. She would check in on him whenever possible. She really felt bad that Sabbath like kicked out their shining star like that. And she kept thinking it would blow over, but of course it didn't. The band mm-hmm. loved Ronnie. They were happy with the replacement. One thing the band wasn't happy about, though, was that Ozzy was still in LA. And Sharon explained to them, well, I'm still managing Ozzy. And they were really not happy about that. And they gave her an ultimatum, us or him. And she talked with her dad and brother. And they handed Ozzy over to a friend of theirs named Sandy Pearlman, who had been looking to get into management. So with Sharon's help, Ozzy got over the like pain and hurt from being fired from Sabbath. She got him really focused on writing again and starting his own band. She really encouraged him out of like a deep, dark hole of depression that all of that caused there's actually a recent music video that Ozzy did for a song of his called under the graveyard and Val Kilmer's son playing Ozzy and you have another female I forget her name playing Sharon and it's sort of in this time frame where she's like pulling him out of the grave and getting him back to life again basically
1: <laughs> so it's pretty literal yeah. interpretation that. Very. So... Is Malcomer's son hot? Uh, yeah, he's cute. He's cute. B.
3: Starting a, a new band would take some months, and Ozzy did go back to his family in England for a while. Sharon talks about how weird it was to, like, suddenly not have him around, and they were spending so much time together by then. But Sharon had other issues she was dealing with, namely her father. As I said, she really idolized her dad growing up, even if he wasn't very moral when it came to business. But Sharon really believed in like the power of like family ties and like blood and all of that. One day she ended up discovering that her dad was having an affair. This was like a huge blow to her. It really shattered her. I guess just finding out that her dad,
1: which I find interesting because it's like, of course he was having affairs. I mean, I'm still upset about the housekeeper thing. Oh yeah, I haven't gotten over that yet. Oh, yeah, yeah, this guy's shit. Yeah.
3: So when Sharon found out, she really like she flipped out. Her dad had this monkey statue, and Sharon dragged it out of the house. She found a, a pair of women's panties in his briefcase, and that's how she found out about the affair. She took the panties, put it on top of this statue of her dad's, and she
1: took a shit on it. <gasps> okay, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> wow she's badass she's wild man
3: she's like gross i haven't even put in every story that i could in this like there's many stories just as insane as this one but yeah he, her dad came home obviously they had a big blowout it was really devastating for her she actually went to the doctor she was prescribed valium and she accidentally overdosed on them she was really drinking heavily at the time She said, everything that people said about my father was true. I felt conned. She didn't tell her mother, but her mom found out the next time she visited L.A. And her mother kind of, she cared, but not enough. Like Sharon thought, like, why don't you care more? Like, why aren't you as angry and hurt as I am type of thing?
1: As someone who was a possessive child over both of my parents in different ways, like, I can see how a parent having an affair can feel like a personal betrayal.
3: Yeah. So on top of this, things business-wise were going down the drain again. Sharon would come home to find her car or jewelry gone, and she would know that Don was up to his old tricks, like having to sell off half of their things because they didn't actually have the money for it. And one day, Jeff Lynne, the frontman of ELO, which was their biggest cash cow, caught on to Don's thievery and confronted Sharon about it. He told Sharon Don owed him $4 million in royalties and warned Sharon, like, I'm getting my lawyers involved. So this, of course, led to them losing ELO, which was a major blow to Don. And Don actually later blamed Sharon and told everyone that Sharon was the reason this all happened. Like a cool, Don? He was an asshole. Yeah. So Sharon's really starting to grow up now. She realizes her dad's way of business is fucked up, that she has been like a pawn in his game. She also felt resentment from her brother. She kind of goes back and forth on wanting to separate herself from the family business, but also being so tied to it. Her dad had her signing stuff for years to, under her name to protect himself, and that would come back to haunt her, but like not for decades. It wasn't until she became famous like for the Osborns and stuff that she ended up having to pay like crazy amounts of tax and stuff because her dad put her name on things and then she kind of forgot about it or didn't really understand what she was signing. Right. Things are just really bad for the business. They're virtually bankrupt. And this was going on right as Ozzy's first solo album was to be released. So while Sharon had been going through all this family stuff, he was busy recording The Blizzard of Oz, which is the best title. So this business is crumbling around then. Sharon still has this attachment to Ozzy. She wanted to make sure his solo debut went off properly. It turns out this was a big task because the band was about to go on tour. They were nowhere near ready. Sharon put all of her focus on Ozzy. Sharon talks about Ozzy's first solo show Her being besides Ozzy's wife, Thelma, how they had nothing in common, she says. And I don't really like the way she talks about Thelma in the book because I feel like she makes assumptions on what Thelma's thinking and feeling. But I understand you're both in your 20s and it's a weird situation. And it's just a bizarre thing. I'm quoting Sharon in the book now. She was just somebody's wife. She was there to support her husband and I was there to work. She was also there to support Ozzy, let's face it. <laughs> so the crowd went wild, of course. Sharon cried tears of joy over how well the debut went. Afterwards, they all got drunk, except Thelma, apparently. I guess Sharon felt that she needed to kind of point out how different Thelma and Ozzy were at the time and how, like, they weren't working anymore. Yeah. She does mention that Ozzy had other women following him around at that time as well. So the fact that he's married with kids in an attic there's just so many issues there but sharon's feelings for ozzy just kept growing despite everything and finally one night after rehearsals sharon and ozzy ended up having their first night together sharon thought it was just going to be a one-night stand she says i was just another in a long line it was only the drink talking and in the morning we'd forget it ever happened But God, did we have a great night? We laughed, we made love, we had a big bubble bath together, then went back to bed again, then had another bath, then I left for the office. Let's play a little bit of Ozzy, some solo Ozzy now. Let's do it. So for the next few weeks, Sharon and the band were on tour. And by the time it was over, it was pretty much obvious to everyone that Ozzy and Sharon were crazy about each other. She talks about a show they did in Birmingham where Thelma and Ozzy's kids came and how horrible it was for her. And she felt guilty and she knew like Ozzy felt guilty. And of course, Ozzy had to play like the husband role. And these situations are so messy. Basically, they fall in love over the tour and parting ways was brutal for them. But Ozzy had to go home. And apparently he was going to break the news to Thelma that he wanted a divorce. Instead, Ozzy just admits to the affair, which wasn't difficult since everyone, including Don, knew about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he swore it was over. Then Hill and Thelma made an appointment to talk to Don. And it was decided that Sharon was to exit her duties and her brother to take over. And Sharon says she got a lot of shit from her brother and her dad about being a homewrecker, which she didn't appreciate because both of them were having affairs as well. <gasps> double standard there, right? If, if you're a of course, woman, yeah. Sharon was really the only one that actually excelled at that side of the job, and you know wasn't stealing things. So things fell apart pretty quickly, and the band was very soon begging Sharon to come back and take over so Ozzy called her she came back they went through a a little time of trying to deny their feelings again but of course that did not last long she booked the band into a home studio to record their second album as soon as they got settled of course the affair began again this was hard to read because just again I felt so bad for Thelma uh Sharon mentions that she would pop up for visits without warning That Sharon would end up like hiding in in rooms or like running up staircases while Thelma was walking down them. They had a lot of close calls. I'm assuming Thelma must have had suspicions and that's why she was coming over because like that's her husband.
1: Oh, a woman
3: knows. Exactly. And Sharon also had work-related reasons to be there as well, of course. So she did see Thelma sometimes and she says, The more she would see me, the more determined she was to make life difficult. And I'm just picturing this poor woman being like, not not being told the truth and just like wanting to figure out what's going on. I'd
1: make life difficult.
3: Sharon also says things like, I don't know if Thelma loved Ozzy and Thelma's trump card was the children. She knew how to play it, turning up with them in tow. And again, I'm like, she's someone being lied to. I don't see her doing anything wrong.
1: But I'm wondering if Ozzy ever cheated on Sharon. What do you think? I feel like he did. For sure. And then Sharon probably did like the same kind of stuff as Selma would do, you know?
3: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting.
1: That's just my... We'll
3: we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay. So they completed the second album. The band was to head to America to do a tour. For singers and bands who go solo suddenly, not many of them reach the heights they experienced in their original band. And that was really a concern for all of them. They really wanted Ozzy to dominate America. But to do so, Sharon felt that they had to reintroduce him to America. So she planned a bunch of meet and greets and publicity things for him. Don sold Ozzy's contract over to CBS. So they're being introduced to the bigwigs at CBS. The morning comes, they want to do something really exciting to say hello to these new co workers. And they decide to go to a pet shop and buy two doves. And Ozzy puts them in his pockets and heads to this event. So Ozzy was really nervous about the whole thing. He gets loaded drunk on the way. They get there. Ozzy immediately feels unwelcome by these, like, suits, right? Like, they're uptight. And apparently he sat on one of the publicity women's lap, who was not very appreciative of that. Of that. He was drunk and... He kind of felt rejected and he took out one of the doves, which I think his plan was to like release them and let them fly or something. But instead, he,
1: you know what happens, right? Okay, so he's got he's got live birds in his pocket this whole time.
3: Yeah, and he's like crazy. Uh, drunk. Have you has
1: anybody even like <laughs> held a bird before? Like that? <laughs> That's okay. So Ozzy's feeling angry,
3: drunk, rejected. I don't know. He takes one of the birds out of his pocket, bites off its head, spits it onto the lap of this woman and shouts
1: fuck you. So Love it. Then the I mean, other I not right? and um, just I don't even... just
3: like the insanity it's like next level. So the other bird gets loose from his pocket, begins flying around the room, all hell breaks loose. Apparently people were like screaming, there was vomiting apparently, security is being called. And what is Sharon doing during all of this? Weeping from uncontrollable laughter. And she literally pisses herself laughing as they're both escorted out of the building.
1: Was this good for his career? Well, that's
3: the interesting thing. So CBS basically decides Ozzy's not worth the trouble, except that his first single was Crazy Train. And that had come out a week before. And it was getting so much airplay that it was number one across America. So it was obvious that Ozzy was going to be this huge cash cow for them. So they just accepted it. Let's play some Crazy Train. They went from worrying about if Ozzy was going to break America to their entire tour being sold out instantly. All from like his crazy antics, really. And of course, <laughs> the song being amazing. So, one positive thing Sharon did learn from her dad was how to put on a good show. And she knew that this had to be bigger and more theatrical than he had ever done before. So, she actually was involved in like every aspect of the stage show. She made sure that the outfits were more theatrical, that the makeup, like the colors, like everything. Like she, she's an amazing businesswoman and she really knows how to put on a show. Sharon really built him the show that she felt he deserved. And for the tour, of course, Sharon and Ozzy shared the same bus, which she calls their first home. She says, it was such freedom not to have to worry about whether Thelma was going to turn up or telephone or even my father or brother. There were no mobile phones in those days. When we were in there, we felt completely safe. It was like we were sailing.
1: That's kind of sweet. So, as we know,
3: Dawn is a thief. Yeah, And we also know Sharon loves Ozzy and wants the best for him. So when the band wasn't getting paid their advance on their second album at Dawn Promised or seeing any of the money from this sold out tour, Sharon got on her father about paying them. And she also began looking for a booking agent that wasn't under her dad's thumb. So they were like on the road, barely surviving, while all these sold out tour checks were going straight to her dad and then... He was taking the money and she was really getting sick of it. Sometimes she was able to persuade local promoters to hand over the settlements instead of sending them on. But that wasn't always the case. And Sharon actually talks a bit about what it was like being a woman in the business back then. And she said, the music business in those days was a boys club fueled by cocaine and sexual favors. These were the days of payola and mafia involvement and the standard currency. If you were a woman was a blowjob. But men soon learned that, of course, Sharon Arden was more likely to kick them in the balls than suck their dick, which is exactly what she did. And there's also a story about her kicking a guy down a flight of stairs. She, she, was, she was badass. Yeah. That, that's like
1: the one good thing she learned from her dad, I guess, like
3: that she can take care of herself.
1: Yeah, she didn't, she didn't take any shit.
3: So if you're picturing Sharon and Ozzy as like a blissful couple during this time, you're partly right. They definitely loved each other and were having so much fun. But he's heavy on the drugs. She was drinking just as much as him at the time. And this is where things start getting violent. So I don't want to get into like all of it, but there are many, many, many stories about both of them. Lashing out at each other. They were both like very physically abusive to one another. Mm -hmm. She talks about breaking his records, ruining his clothes, throwing bottles at his head. He broke two of her front teeth once. (gasps) Um, She says, like, the general pattern was that Ozzy would hit and I would throw anything I could pick up. She says that one time she woke up in the morning and her face was so battered that she barely recognized herself and she had no memory of how it happened. And that's when she realized one of them had to stay sober or at the very least not get to that level. And clearly that wasn't going to be Ozzy at the time. So she's really lightened up on her drinking and everything. So it was on the second leg of the tour that the infamous bat incident happened. Basically after the dove incidents, fans were constantly throwing the wildest things that they could on stage. A lot of dead animals, which is weird. Rats, snakes. They were in Des Moines and someone threw what Ozzy thought was a rubber bat, and he grabbed it and bit its head, only to realize it was a live pat. <laughs> such a weird, such a bizarre thing. So Sharon immediately took him to the hospital after the show. He had to get anti-rabies injections. She describes the syringe as the size of a cigar, which they injected into his stomach. Of course, the next day, it was news all around the world. And apparently, like, any publicity is good publicity. So... It's funny, it it did cost them some shows though, like certain cities around the world canceled their gigs, but I think they made up for it in record sales and everything anyway. This tour was like a wild one. Later on, they were robbed. Sharon says about $500,000 worth in jewelry was stolen from her. Mm. And then in March of 1982, a tragedy happened. There was an air conditioning issue on their tour bus and their driver said, we have to stop at my house and get it fixed. And the driver was also a pilot, so there are planes on his property. And they stopped to take a break. And a bunch of them were napping on the bus, Ozzy and Sharon included. And suddenly Sharon wakes up to this big crash. And what had happened was the driver offered some of their roadies and bandmates rides in this plane. Oh. And Randy Rhodes, who's the guitarist, and Rachel Youngblood who was really close with Sharon, they were on this plane ride with him and the plane ended up clipping the tour bus and hitting a tree before crashing into the house and all three people on the plane passed away.
1: Oh, that's terrible. Yeah.
3: I looked online and I couldn't find that this was a fact, but Sharon claims in the book that the driver was in the middle of a divorce and his wife who had been on tour with them, was standing in front of the tour bus. And he she thinks that he was, like, trying to hit her or something, or maybe scare her. I couldn't find, like, f- that as a fact. I just thought it was strange oh, that she I'm put it in it, it. you
1: trying to look it up. <laughs> I'm looking it up.
3: Yeah, it was a horrifying incident. Sharon and Ozzy get off the bus. They're all disoriented. they friends. Like, they saw their friends' bodies scattered everywhere, basically. So... It was like a huge, huge, horrifying thing for them. The tour was canceled for two weeks. They attended the funerals for their friends. But Sharon still had to be like the boss and like find a replacement, even though she was like hurting over the loss of their friends. You know, none of them wanted to finish the tour, but they persevered. And it was around this time that Ozzy was finalizing his divorce finally with Thelma, who had had enough. I think even though that the divorce wasn't finalized, Sharon and Ozzy by this point are engaged Mm -hmm. and it was just paperwork that was left. So that happened in June of 82, right before they were headed to Japan for another big leg of the tour. And they decided they'd stop over first in Hawaii on the way and tie the knot. You might as well. Might as well. Only their families were present. Ozzy's mom and sister and Sharon, both of Sharon's parents. And this happened, I believe, on July 4th, 1982. And Sharon was 28 and Ozzy was 33. So, wow. yeah, right? Still so young. Yeah. Was it romantic? Not at all. She says that her father, as her dad's walking her down the aisle, was asking her, like, did you get the stage set up for Japan? Like, he was going over production stuff with her. And she spent the her wedding night signing paper after paper that her father had brought to the wedding, which was actually the only reason he came to their wedding at all, was to get her to sign these papers. So after the Japan tour, they decided they were going to move to England so that Ozzy could still be close to his kids. A day after they got there, Sharon's father and brother took Ozzy out to a pub and Sharon says that they proceeded to tell Ozzy that Sharon was insane that it was her fault that ELO left their management and all this crazy bullshit and we're like Ozzy don't worry about it we'll make sure you get an annulment we'll say that she's insane we'll get you out of this oh boy right of course Ozzy told Sharon everything and Sharon couldn't believe that her family would go that far even though you know finally on to how horrible they are so she says the next day she went around to her family's house to see her mother and her parents dogs literally attacked her until her mother finally called them off she had to go to the hospital and she discovered not only the wounds from the dogs biting her but she actually suffered a miscarriage from like the shock of dog thing and she didn't even pregnant. yeah One of her father's bookkeepers was there, like, trying to get Sharon to sign more papers, and she actually did one last time on that tax return. And then she left with two suitcases, and she says she never looked back. So she finally got away from her god-awful family. So Sharon was a smart woman. She knew how business worked and that she wasn't going down without a fight. She immediately took Ozzie to New York, went straight to CBS, who did his pressings and distribution. She told them they were leaving her father's label, that if they gave them any more money to Don, that Ozzie would sue them. So the next step was to find a lawyer to help them, which proved really difficult since no one wanted to go up against her father. Like, that's how scary he was to people. All the while, her dad's team is going around telling everyone Sharon's gone insane. Even her mother has turned on her, and is like supporting her dad. So Sharon and Ozzy were like really all alone in this. And since management held the purse strings, they really had nothing no credit cards, no cash, no driver's license, even just their passports. Sharon called their friend, Bill Elson, for help, who was Ozzy's agent at ICM. She explained everything. He found some money for them and a lawyer. Don, of course, wasn't happy about that. Sent his goons to harass Bill, but Bill did not cower to Don. Good for Bill. Actually, word came on the street that Don wanted to kill Sharon. Holy moly. Yeah. And Sharon and Ozzy actually ended up having to hide out while the lawyers dealt with everything because they were, like, worried for their lives. So her dad wanted $1.5 million for Ozzy's contract. They had to waive all the money they had made touring up till that point and the royalties And they would have to do one more album to get free of him. CBS agreed to lend them the money to pay off her father. And they went into debt, which took five years to repay. But finally, they got free of him after that.
1: Contracts are scary. Contracts and dogs are scary. I'm scared.
3: You really got to look over it and be careful. So through all that stress, Sharon had another miscarriage. They were really... Having a hard time, but they were slowly digging themselves out of it. Sharon got back with the band working, booking tours, tons of promo. Ozzy is like at his peak, Ozzy drug insaneness at this point, though. So it's not exactly smooth sailing. Again, a lot of stories in the book, a lot of times where Ozzy's behavior is just bizarre and weird. Like one time, fans won a dinner with Ozzy. And while that was happening, the person, like the management person who was the one that set it up, was sitting next to Ozzy, and Ozzy was like, punch me in the face, punch me in the face. And this poor guy was like, I don't, I don't want to punch you in the face. And... Sharon didn't know what to do. So she turned to Ozzy and was like, you want me to punch you in the face? And Ozzy was like, yeah. And so Sharon punched him in the face and then he was like, thank you. And then they just went back to like dinner, like nothing happened. Thank you. And there's also an incident where they're in Germany with execs and Ozzy's pissed drunk out of his mind. He ended up stripping completely nude, doing the Hitler salute at the dinner table and like calling them all Nazis. Okay, It's weird though, because like, Sharon, you'd think you'd be mortified of your husband doing this stuff, but she is laughing throughout all of this. Peeing in her pants again? Exactly. Sharon suffered a third miscarriage, and that's when she went to a doctor, and he explained that she needed this surgery to stitch together her cervix. So she did that, and she had to lay low for about 12 weeks. So that was hard for her because Ozzy was on the road. She didn't get to go. And she says... It would be nice to say that Ozzy behaved impeccably, but he was a complete and utter bastard. He was out of his mind, drugging, drinking, cheating. So yeah, uh, Sharon does talk about the pain that caused her, even though she knew he didn't have feelings for these other women that he was like sleeping with. But of course, Sharon felt alone and awful. And she's dealing with like miscarriages and trying to get pregnant. and Just not a good scene. Mm-hmm. But Sharon had the surgery. She recovered. They were able to get back on the road. Sharon did get one up on her dad, which was great. That gorgeous house in LA was financed by a loan they took out. And of course, her father never bothered to make the loan payments so the bank was going to repossess the house there was a trick around it though her dad could sell the house first and use that money to pay the bank and pocket whatever money was left over but all those years of sharon signing her name it was her that was the owner of the house and she refused to sell so the bank repossessed it evicted her dad and he never got a dime from it oh nice yeah one This of course infuriated him though, and that again he was like threatening her life. She said she'd get calls from his henchmen saying things like, Don knows you're in New York, and says to remind you that New York is a very dangerous place and you should watch your back. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine getting threats from like your dad like that? That's just No, I can't.
1: I literally can't.
3: It's so terrible. Anyway, life went on. Sharon and Ozzy welcomed their first daughter, Amy, in September of 1983. Sharon realized managing Ozzy while also managing a new baby was difficult, so she got a little help
1: with that. With Um, uh, managing Ozzy or help with the baby? Both. Okay.
3: Just for people to understand how much work Sharon was doing, she was Ozzy's sole management at that point. She was negotiating his contracts, setting up the tours and the promo, employing all the crews, organizing the merch, the stage sets, the opening acts, all that and more. That was all her. So she hired another woman, which is great, named Lynn Seeger to help with that. And Lynn, I think, would continue on for the next 20 years with them or more. So after four months being a a, a new mother to Amy, she discovered she was pregnant again. That was Kelly. And she was born in October of 1984. This is around the time that Ozzy first gets into rehab because he's a total mess. He has two newborn babies now. They knew he had to kind of start getting his shit together. So the rehab was in Palm Springs. Sharon and kids soon followed. She went there for like group therapy. There's a lot in the book. Again, I'm not going to go into like everything, but over the course of the six months, things kind of really looked up. She got a lot of these family ser- therapy sessions. unfortunately Ozzy's sobriety lasted two hours after the mm. six months like he just immediately went for a drink but th- they had commitments now like more tours and stuff. so even though Sharon was worried about you know him being ready in terms of his addiction, like he- they could not cancel some of these events. Sharon also talks about how she continually gained weight over the 80s, which is not surprising since she's pumping out these kids. They had their third child, Jack, in November of 85. And she says sober Ozzy never cared about her weight, but drunk Ozzy would make fun of her and make painful jokes, especially if there was an audience around. Of course, that affected her. So Ozzy's like really struggling with his alcohol issues when Jack arrived. And Sharon says he was like always at his worst when writing and recording because of the pressures there all through this when the kids are being born and everything she's still talking about him being violent and like them having bad issues so that was still part of their regular life some improvements were happening though Sharon says that the autumn of 1986 was the last time that Ozzy ever cheated on her I think this was mostly out of fear, because this is sort of when the AIDS crisis began happening. And Sharon says that she discovered a stocking that wasn't hers. And she threw it at him and was like, well, you better get tested now. And he was like, tested. And she mentioned AIDS and everything. And apparently... That just freaked him out. And he got tested and it was negative, of course. But every month after that for two years, he would get tested out of fear. So I think you stop cheating mostly out of concern for his health. Okay. Yeah. In case you're wondering how Sharon's dad and brother are doing at this time.
1: Uh, I'm not. Just well, just kidding,
3: I, am. I-, yeah. I gotta tell you, her brother actually got arrested and sentenced to two years in prison for kidnapping, extortion and assault, which was all, of course, over business deals. Oh, my God. Her dad flew the coop, was later extradited back to the UK to stand trial two years after that. But he got off, so he must have paid someone. Yeah. So by 1987, Sharon and Ozzy were almost at a breaking point. It was really awful reading all of this. There's a moment when recording No Rest for the Wicked that Ozzy tried to strangle Sharon in front of a bunch of people who had to, like, literally drag him off of her. Another time, he punched her and dislocated her jaw. Sharon mentions Ozzy's song Dr. Jekyll Doesn't Hide and says that's exactly him like rage one minute calm the next it wasn't just booze he was also taking a lot of prescription pills at that point Sharon talks about thinking about leaving him but she had three kids she had no personal bank account no family and like a lot of women in that situation I think she kind of felt stuck also she loved him of course so like it was just a lot for her she really didn't know what to do she of course mentions like not wanting to sexual with him during this time but sometimes he would come home drunk expecting sex and she said she never said no but she would like be crying because she didn't want to do it
1: oh no yeah
3: one time she did give him an ultimatum about divorcing if he came home drunk and he relented and quit cold turkey which led to him having multiple alcoholic seizures so he's like real bad right now Mm -hmm. so while Sharon's dealing with that disaster in her home life. She's also branching out as a businesswoman, though. She was talking to Ozzy's agent, Bill Elson, who was like, you should manage other people. Otherwise, everyone will look at you as just a wife. She wasn't wrong. And Bill had someone in mind for Sharon, which was Lita Ford from The Runaways, who at this point was becoming a solo artist as well. Sharon took it on and Lita had success and even did a duet with Ozzy. So this really gave Sharon confidence to keep working. And she soon found other bands, the Choir Boys, um, the Bonhams, John Bonhams' son's band. Ozzy wasn't that happy about this, though. What male musician isn't happy when the focus isn't on him, right? Right? (laughs) You said. Yeah, but Sharon enjoyed it and was making her own money all legitimate on her own terms. So that was very liberating for her. In 1989, the violence came to a head when Ozzy who was obliterated one evening, actually decided to kill Sharon. He ended up strangling her and thank God she managed to set off the house alarm and the police came and arrested Ozzie. This of course was headline news. Police asked Sharon if she wanted to press charges for attempted murder. Her reason for declining was that Ozzie had been blackout drunk and she recalled being blackout drunk in her life and understood that people can be capable of things they wouldn't normally do. So that was her reasoning for not charging Ozzy. But Ozzy did end up going to another rehab, of course, because of this. After rehab, Sharon let him come back home, but told him, you ever hit me again, I'm gone. And this is the last time she mentions violence in the book. So hopefully that was the last time. Mm -hmm you think this incident would have scared Ozzy sober, but it didn't. He was back drinking within weeks. Sharon is just, I don't know. I I just can't imagine going through all that. Obviously, it does mentally affect you and your decisions and everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, they have children. The children are seeing this and hearing this, and that's awful. I have... um... Kelly or Jack written books? Kelly might have, I'm not really sure. Like it would be interesting to hear it from their perspective too. For sure. Mm-hmm.
3: The, an interesting thing happened in the book around this time. Sharon mentions that multiple doctors at these rehab clinics in the 80s had told her they believed Ozzy had parkinsons, but they dismissed it. They blamed the addictions, the withdrawal for like all of his physical issues and it wasn't until 2003 when Michael J. Fox publicly came out about his Parkinson's that they decided, oh, maybe this is it. Like, we should take this seriously. So she says Ozzy was diagnosed with having Parkinsonian syndrome, Mm -hmm. um, something like Parkinson's, but it doesn't progress in the same way. So I thought that was interesting because it was like only maybe in the past year that came out and I guess now he has Parkinson's or something. Okay. But he definitely had been dealing with the effects of that for since the 80s. So by 1993, things were back on track for the family. Ozzy and Sharon took some time off touring and recording and all that. It was just them and the kids in England. I'm pretty sure like Ozzy was still drinking at this point, but not as hard. By the time they had to go back to work, though, Sharon had this brilliant idea. Organizing tours and crews was such a major job. But for bands working the festival circuit, you just have to worry about your own circle of people and like the performance, not like the whole picture. Right. So Lollapalooza was in full swing by then, and Sharon actually tried to get Ozzy a spot, but he was turned down because he was considered too heavy. So that got Sharon thinking, why not have a festival like this, but for hard rock bands? And that's when OzFest was born, though it would take three years of hard work and planning to get it going. So that started in 1996 with only two tour dates, but it was a huge success. And the next year, they covered 22 cities. Okay. So to give you an idea of what Sharon was handling with OzFest, it's a crew of about 60 people, two stages, 20 bands, total number of people on the road ends up being close to like 600 people. And all those people need to be fed three times a day. It's just a mountain of work, but she obviously kicked butt with it. Right. So it's about this time they decided to move to LA because all the business that they were doing was in America. So it made sense. In 1997, they were approached by a UK production company who wanted to do an Aussie at home type of documentary. So they did that and it was an, it was a success. And that caught the eye of MTV. And at first MTV asked them if they would participate on their show Cribs, which they did. And that became one of their most successful crib episodes that was most requested on MTV. Oh. So- So everything was going well. Business is booming. In 1999, Ozzy went to rehab again and Sharon underwent surgery to help her lose weight. So she talks a lot in the book, of course, about the yo-yoing of her life. Uh, Sometimes she was a size six, sometimes she was a size 22. And it really affected her physically and mentally. So she jumped at this opportunity to try a new procedure where they cut a hole in your stomach and make a new pouch for your intestinal tract so you eat less and expel quicker. It it changed her life. She says the first year she lost 125 pounds. So she underwent some plastic surgery to get rid of excess skin and whatnot. She says the moment she realized everything changed was in 2002 because People Magazine included her in the most beautiful section. And like she had never considered herself beautiful. So that was a special moment for her. Of course, losing all that weight made her more energetic as well. When things were at her worst with Ozzy in the late 80s, and Sharon actually stepped away from managing other artists for a while, but she took on the challenge again. And she actually ended up becoming the Smashing Pumpkins manager for a while. And she tells some horror stories about Billy Corgan and his massive ego. Mm -hmm. So that didn't last long, but it's an amusing part in the book for those interested. Um, So yeah, after the crib episode aired, it was like such a huge deal that MTV came back at them and was like, we would like to do three shows with you like three episode shows about you and the family. So the whole family was in except Amy, who instead took a producer role on the project and shooting began October 2001. And things went so well that MTV asked to extend the shoot time. So six weeks turned into six months. Then the first episode aired March 5th, 2002. And as we all know, it became a huge phenomenon. Such
1: early days of reality television. Yeah, they were really one of the first for that. Oh, right. Yeah. And yeah. they
3: weren't scripted either. Like that was actually reality. Just a- Yeah,
1: that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. So. What yeah, reality is really scripted now. Yeah. yeah you're right.
3: Right away, their lives change. Suddenly, they're being invited to the White House. Ozzy's asked to perform at the Queen's Jubilee. Sharon started hosting MTV coverage for that. She talks about how, like, instant fame, it was just this crazy new thing. And suddenly, like, all the people you want to meet want to meet you. So they were really loving it. They were on top of the world, which usually means something bad's going to happen. And it did. Sharon discovered she had colon cancer, And she insisted the show must go on. And with the support of her family, she went into chemo. She goes into detail about how difficult all of that was and her journey through cancer. She actually wrote a second book. It's called Survivor, and it's about her experience with cancer. So season one of The Osbournes went on to win an Emmy, which was MTV's first ever. And it really, like you said, like it established a new genre of reality TV that really dominates to this day. In 2003, Ozzy had a quad bike accident. He almost didn't make it through, but of course he did. Between Ozzy's solo work and with Black Sabbath, his sales at this point are over $100 million. And Black Sabbath were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And just this past year, Ozzy put out an album. So like he's still successful and in it. And hopefully they're dealing with their medical issues. And as we know... The Osbournes are still all over the media. Sharon went on to do X Factor, Celebrity Apprentice, The Talk, and God knows how many other reality or mm-hmm. entertainment shows. And their kids have followed suit. Ozzy and Jack have a show together called Ozzy and Jack's World De- Detour,
1: apparently. So yeah. yeah and if- Stardust if- just went and tried to see him this year, actually. Yes, in like that's February, right. In LA. He was doing a meet and greet kind of thing. Yeah, so he's still, he's still
3: around and, oh, I hope Stardust gets to meet him sometime.
1: Me too. I
3: talked to Stardust about this episode and asked her which songs I should put in. So thank you for that, Stardust. Before we close up here, if you're wondering about Sharon and her family, she did kind of end up reconciling with them. Her mother passed away in 1999 and after 9-11 happened, Ozzy kind of really pushed Sharon to deal with her, her family issues since... They were kind of realizing now, I guess, like time is fleeting. We're not going to be alive forever. Um, By then, her dad was old and had lots of health problems and no money. He had no friends. Sharon actually took care of his needs until his passing in 2007. At the time she wrote the book, which was 2006, it seemed like her and her brother had made amends as well, though I'm not sure what their relationship is like now. That's Sharon's crazy story, and I really encourage people to read the book because I could have put in so much more and I knew this episode was going to be like a little bit longer than normal just because I wanted to put in so much, but like I left out so much and crazy stories and everything too that were just wild to read, but didn't kind of propel things forward. So
1: that was great. And I really didn't know that she was raised in the music business. Yeah. 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 Like, really- like that you know talk about family business and I I don't think um you know there are some people that you're like oh yeah they kind of followed in the footsteps after their dad and now they're a part of the company too but if it would have been like a music related thing I would have been like I would have been right in there too oh yeah you know what I mean? oh yeah working and getting to know and of course yeah I think that was um that was great that was a really good episode thanks Lynx. you're welcome and I just there's a lot of things that Sharon says or does
3: that I'm like, oh man, that's crazy or that's awful or whatever. But one thing is certain and she is an incredible businesswoman. And just like so many other women that we talk about, Ozzy would not have the career that he had or has without her support. I don't he probably would not be alive right now without her support. So she she is an incredible woman. And I think it is really interesting that she kind of learned from her dad basically like what not to do. And she was like, I'm going to be better than this. I'm, I'm going to be legitimate. I'm going to make money properly. And I respect her as a businesswoman so much.
1: Great. Yeah. Cool, dude. Love it. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you, everybody, for listening. That wraps up another episode of Muses. If you want more... Um, and you miss us on the weeks off Because we release twice a month Head over to our Patreon We release on the alternate weeks there $5 a month gets you our backlog Of all of our past content And we put something out every single week So there you go
3: Yes, uh, thanks everyone And make sure to review and rate us on iTunes Please, it would mean so much to us See you later
0: i face a thousand times because
2: Muses is produced by Chantal Lemieux and Lynx O'Leary and is part of the Pantheon family of podcasts. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at pantheonpodcasts.com. All songs can be found wherever you get your music. Please download and purchase these great and important tracks. Come find us. At Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook, tweet us at Pantheon Pods, or see us at R Archaeology on Instagram.
0: My name is Damone Carter, aka Dem One. And I'm Nate LeBlanc. And we are two-thirds of the crew that host the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Our third co-host is internationally
2: acclaimed hip-hop writer David Ma.
0: As the name of the show suggests, Dad Bod Rap Pod is a podcast where men of a certain age discuss, debate, and dissect rap music.
2: While we are somewhat classicist in our tastes and grew up listening to hip-hop from the 80s until now, we are also interested
0: in the music's present and future. Over the past 115 episodes, we have been interviewed rap legends like Prince Paul, Dell the Funky Homo Sapien, Roxanne Shante, Cool Keith, DJ Premier, and even the proto-rap group The Last Poets, just to name a few.
2: We also make it a point to talk to writers, commentators, and creatives shaping the genre. We've interviewed journalists and best-selling authors like Nathaniel Friedman, Jeff Weiss, Hanif Abdul rakib and Adam Mansbach.
0: And as Nate mentioned, even though we are products of the 80s, 90s, we take time out to talk to some of the most important voices in rap today, groups and individuals like Little Brother, Open Mike Eagle, Billy Woods, and Rap Ferrer. If you don't recognize any of those names, that's okay, because what we love most on this podcast is to introduce old-school fans of rap music to new music that we know you will love. New episodes every week on Thursday. We are the Dad Bod Rap Pod.
2: It's NFL Draft Season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football